0: As a performer,
1: your body is there. Hi, I'm Mad-Kate, and you're listening to SWEAT, sexuality, work, extraction, art, theatrics. SWEAT is a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body at work, where work is defined as the labor of survival, the labor of care, creativity, and capital A, art. How exactly do we define our work? And how does that work entangle and circumscribe our sexual identities, our creative lives, and the ways in which we provide care? How do we perform tasks, acts of care, and identities? Anchored in our always already sexualized and racialized bodies, our complex intersectionalities, these conversations are about how we relate to our work and to each other through performance of work and creativity. I hope that they contribute to dialogues which normalize sex work as work and all work as deserving of respect, healthy conditions, and a living wage.
0: I'm extracting myself for you, the consumer, for you, the audience, and then we can put an actual price tag on that. Today's conversation features performance
1: artist, writer, and director Lori Baldwin, whose thought-provoking work is based in the desire for connection and disruption. She designs performances and experiences intended to call spectators to action by questioning aspects of their immediate surroundings. Through theater, live art, and film, Lori's approach weaves lightness and provocation together in order to challenge commonly held ideas about power, gender, endings, eroticism, and death.
0: If you're having a piece that has a capital A art assigned to it, it has a big price tag.
1: In her collaborative creative processes, she seeks to build affirming spaces based on a non-judgmental, collective approach towards composition and devising. Her artistic strategy is to invite a critical look into the world we live in while creating an interactive experience that gently provokes audience participation and thoughtful engagement. Um, I don't know where we want to jump in. I mean, maybe you want to tell me a little bit about how it was for you as an artist in Berlin during the pandemic.
0: There was one layer during the pandemic where, here in Germany, because we had um, pretty decent support for artists, at least I felt decently supported, um, where you essentially got a basic income um, that allowed you to survive throughout the pandemic. And there was this ease in a certain way that came from that. I think it helped. It helped immensely. And I felt really, I remember feeling really. Fortunate to be living in Germany, to be living somewhere where I was supported in that way. In essence, it also kind of put a pin in any existential crisis of like, what am I doing with my life? Because I almost felt like there was no way to choose anything else right then. I could just accept these were the circumstances to a certain extent. And I think also having that basic income just helped take the stress off of worrying where the next gig was going to come. And that was huge for the time. And then, of course, there were difficult parts. And when it was a more intense lockdown, it was much harder. Um, So I don't want to make it sound like it was just like, oh, nice and easy. And we just like chilled at home. Although there was definitely some of it that was just, you know, dealing with the lockdown and just being in a pandemic and there's not much you can do. Um... Then there was also, I I was involved with a project called Overmorrow that happened when it wasn't like such a severe lockdown. So it happened mostly in the summertime. And that to me felt like a really amazing expression of creative and artistic resilience in the face of a pandemic. It was like a performative installation exhibition that was immersive that took place at Villa Renata. And a lot of artists were brought on board to essentially divide up the space, build these crazy installations and then perform in them. And so audiences would walk through and in each room they'd have maybe a two to five minute performance interaction with a single or two performers in that space. And that felt really amazing to be a part of. It was like a playground because there was a lot of artistic freedom. You could really do whatever you wanted and it allowed for a kind of performative interaction that actually I hadn't gotten to experience for a while of having this like one-on-one or one-on-three experience with an audience that was continually rotating and also with an audience that was really hungry for something and that was so excited to be given something um, because, you know, it had been a few months where everything was really closed. I mean, it was also completely funded by tickets. There was no state funding to make this thing happen, so it was really all like artist-run And no one made a lot of money, but we got to make art. So one way I made it more financially rewarding, and which also was, I think, creatively rewarding, was by turning actually a couple of the performances within the performance into hustles. So in one of the rooms, um, a co-performer and I did a post-apocalyptic brothel where people could choose items off of a menu. So one was like a... They could have a punishment, they could have a dance, or they could have a intimate, sensual, sexual experience designed to fulfill your desires. And this last option was, of course, paid. And so audiences would pay whatever amount they felt like giving, and we would always say, the more you pay, the more you get for this experience. And then they would pay, and then we would do kind of a live-action reenactment of a, a, a scene... So it's basically like an improv game that we just made a little sexy, where we would ask, um, and I was oft- I was most often the storyteller, because I was the brothel madame, and I would ask them um, for like a place and a famous person or a fictional character, something you'd never say to your mother, and then I would weave all of those elements into an erotic story, and then another performer, um, or maybe two other performers would then act it out. Um, So it was raunchy. There was no actual sex happening, but it was very suggestive, very raunchy. Sometimes we would incorporate the audience members as well if they paid a little bit more. And I would say we did this particular um, performance. I mean, I, I have no idea how many times. We did it so many times, like. Over a hundred, at least. And every time the story was different and every time the audience was satisfied, I think only once was an audience not satisfied. And then I was like, well, too bad. (laughs) It's a brothel. You don't get your money back. made it pretty satisfying uh, to make that hustle into an extra layered hustle. Another hustle that I had, side hustle within the performance, was called Pain or Poetry. And my character was Persephone, uh, goddess of the underworld. And I would welcome people in and they could choose Pain or Poetry. And if they chose Pain, it was not free. They had to pay. Um, and then they could come into, I was kind of performing inside a big cage stage and uh, they could come into my cage. They could choose, uh, essentially like a spanking, um, I want to say utensil, but that's not the word, a spanking (laughs) device. I I had a few paddles. I had like a whip. I had a, um, I had a few things and they could choose one of them and then I would spank them. Um, and This was also a really nice exercise in generating intimacy with an audience member of taking BDSM practice into a performative setting that's interactive because I think, I mean, in Berlin, you have kinky performances, but usually you're seeing other people do it. And I think that there's something that I've done in a couple of different performances where I've been working directly with audience members and for me the most interesting part of that is the like element of consent and how I integrate a conversation about consent into the performance itself and so I make it playful but it's definitely consensual and I make sure that that's really clear and that that's like a really intentional part of it. That's super interesting. What what like how do you establish consent with a
1: with a stranger in that situation?
0: I mean, it's pretty like it's it's by just looking at them, like making eye contact, and then like going through the basics of okay, so they can you know they choose the tool. Thank you. They choose the, the tool, the toy they that they would like, and then I'm pretty sure I gave them like the the traffic light system. system. Yeah, so I said like. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to spank you. Is here okay? And I would, like, maybe touch them where I was going to hit them. And then I'd say green is good. Um, Yellow means, you know, that's almost at my limit. And if you say red, I will stop. And then, like, they would usually be okay. And I would start. And I would always start pretty gentle. And then I would be checking in regularly, like, making sure that they were still happy. And then it's just a practice of, like sensing the other person's energy and how far they're willing to go with you. And if it feels like they're interested in going further, if it feels like they maybe are really done after like one hit, you know, I don't know, it's a negotiation. It's an energy exchange and it's a conversation. So and now that we're on the top of consent and where it uh, overlaps with my performance practice and another performance that I'm doing uh, right now called You, Me and Death Make Three Uh, together with Marta Carta, there's one scene where she uh, performs as a sheriff and she does like a lap dance to an audience member who she pulls up on stage and handcuffs and everything. And then she leaves them in handcuffs on stage with a whip in their mouth. And I come out and inevitably the audience member always takes the whip out before they're supposed to because, you know, they're, you know, they're obviously supposed to just like sit there and wait till they've received further instructions. One should one should know this. But, you know, they they always like kind of start to get up and take it out. And then there's always a kind of there's usually a punishment for that, which is spanking. And this last time when we did it, I got there to rescue the audience member and spank them. And I could see the person was like really not. Comfortable and just was like if she could have she handled the lap dance but like she was kind of done and I could see it in her eyes and I was like you know you're also still performing in front of 100 people where you're having to like make this moment cheeky and fun and not uncomfortable but you want to give the person a gracious exit so you know it was just this moment of like Real time navigating, like, oh, okay, I can't go the route that I normally go. This person's not going to be spanked. How do I like get them off stage in a way that doesn't compromise the performance and also doesn't make them feel like they've been pushed too far? And so, and then for me, that's just a moment of like saying to the rest of the audience, like, well, consent is extremely important here. We take it very seriously, and you say it with a wink and you say it with a smile, but it's also the message is there and. It, it's also bolstered by the action that you take. Right. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential crossover, and I think, I guess, crossover in my own performances that keeps popping up. Absolutely,
1: yeah. I mean, it's, it's also interesting how BDSM is coded as sexual, Maybe in mainstream society. But it's also so much about power and consent and the way bodies interact. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious where you place it. Is it a sexual practice that you're bringing to the stage? Is that the interest or is it? I mean, I'm always in between. So I
0: would say for sure it's in between. there's definitely I mean yes it has a sexual context or like even history or that's association that people put with it um, but we're also seeing it a lot more in like even mainstream media on tv and film and even if you're watching like films from the 70s it'll probably show up but like in maybe a bit more like subtle ways and then now we have like more overt representations and depictions of it so I think Part of it is there's just something in some of the performance personas that I've made that is she's just a bit of a top and she's a bit of a domina and not necessarily in like a professional domina way, but just in this way of asserting herself and asserting power. And then this is a kind of easy performative mechanism through which you can very concretely exert power over an audience member. And it's naughty in a way that people feel like, oh, maybe they've never seen that before, or they've only thought about it, or they've only seen it in a certain context. They're not expecting it here. They like to participate in something that's a little naughty. And I think it gives them a feeling of having transgressed, dip their toe in that pool, but, you know, from a very safe way. So, and I think that there's also something that just, of for all goes in my work of not wanting of, of wanting to balance serious um topics with a playful approach and so i think bringing this in is a way of bringing in even questions of power of communication of consent of trust without having to say any of those words it's just there and we're being playful and that's very satisfying
1: Have you brought in these practices or these kind of performances into places where you believe that maybe the audience really is quite surprised by
0: the fact that it's there? With the cabaret one specifically, I think some audience members are very surprised. And even in Overmorrow, I had people tell me, I've never done this before. This is the first time I was ever spanked. Thank you. Wow. So even there, where you think like, okay, people are going to be ready for it, actually... I don't think they were or some maybe some people are, but some people definitely aren't. And then I had a performance called The Villages that was also like kind of BDSM based, but the tables were a bit turned and I was inviting the audience to slap me. And this I performed, I performed a few times in more like a performance art context. When I performed it in Edinburgh, there I really felt that the audience was completely unprepared and did not know what was going on and I had I had a few people like participate but I'm pretty sure there was the longest time that I was just like standing wow. and waiting because that's also part of the performance I give the frame and then I take off, I, or I took off my clothes and I was just standing and watching people while they watched me watch them and I remember there was really people did not know what to do with me but I think also in that case, it was a bit the the performance space also changed the feeling of it because it was, I almost feel like I remember it being in like a lecture, it felt like a lecture hall. Oh, wow. And so it was a bit of like a come to the class, like come to the front of the classroom um, to slap your teacher. You know, it was it was not, not normally the context that I would have performed it in, they were the, People from Anatomy are super lovely, and I think they do really amazing work. But it was, it was a really bizarre place to to do this piece. Um, but I, I, you know, I still think it works. I still think it worked to then. Yeah, amazing. yeah.
1: What is your gender when you're on stage? And did you have a sense that your gender was different in those two different performances?
0: Oh, that's interesting. I feel. Um, I think my gender. I. I. I, I identify as a woman and unless i'm like i think i'm a woman when i'm on stage when i'm performing in drag then i feel like my drag king character so that's maybe a bit different i think i bring like a masculine energy and maybe i bring that same kind of masculine energy to other characters as well so it doesn't have there can be like a kind of fluidity there Um, but at the time when I did this piece in particular I was presenting a lot more androgynous than I do now and so I think my gender was still perceived as female um, but maybe like female with a question mark (laughs) and I also didn't like I don't think I wore any makeup I was like it was very plain button-down shirt trousers so it was a very like androgynous look I'm not sure if that like impacted audience experience. I mean, I'm sure. No, I'm sure it did because it would be very different if I were to go with my now blonde hair, red lipstick, and heels and do this performance. That would change it somehow. I'm not sure into what, and I don't do the performance anymore. Um, actually, funnily enough, I I stopped. Well, I I kind of reached my end with it. I tried a few different iterations. I also tried iterations where I. Um, first would get slapped and then I would slap people if they wanted to be slapped so I went through some iterations and then I reached a point where I felt like I wasn't getting paid enough to do it and I didn't see an opportunity to earn significant money and not that all art is about money but in that particular performance the physical and emotional toll that it generated did not I I didn't feel like I was compensated enough to (laughs) make up for that it got harder to do it many times. Right. And so I stopped and I was like, okay, this piece is done for now, maybe forever.
1: That's very interesting. I mean, it kind of leads me to think about like how much is art related to money and maybe to a question that takes us back to COVID times, which is, did receiving a basic income affect your creative, not maybe output, but also just what you were generating?
0: I know I don't think it actually did. I maybe it did or maybe it would be different if I was still receiving that basic income now. I'm not sure if like over a long period of time because realistically it wasn't even that long that we received those the IBB grants, right? Which was how much? Um I don't remember. Do you remember?
1: I guess um the first one was 5000.
0: Yeah, 5000 for how long? Oof. I mean, I want to say six months. That's actually nothing. Now I'm like, I know. (laughs) I felt so well supported. And I'm like, wait a second, that's not that much. But it was still enough to take the edge off. And I think that that was, I mean, and especially during Corona, when things were even more precarious, because you didn't have, you know, gigs. But okay, back to your question of if it impacted my creative output. Well, another thing I did during Corona, I wanted to mention before, I applied for and received my first ever like big public funding to put on a performance. and it's funny because I well I think a lot of other artists experience successful funding uh, during Corona um, because there was a lot more money that was invested into certain grants and then all of a sudden now, we're experiencing that, like, surge in competition and a lot of people competing for less money. And that's really hard. And it's its own, I mean, that's like a whole, its own whole topic. Um, but, yeah, during Corona, I put on Death's Cabaret together with Aaron Reeder. And we received a grant to devise and compose original music and make things and staged this big, beautiful production that I'm still very proud of. And we were um, also kind of responsive to the context of Corona and to, like, kind of thinking about what it means to be in a pandemic. And, you know, the kind of overall topic we were thinking about was um, fear in the face of the apocalypse. (laughs) And if we're thinking of death and the the other three horsemen um, hosting a cabaret... In the face of impending doom, what does this cabaret look like? And that was the piece. That's the show. So it was also a response to corona in a lot of ways. And we had some COVID-related humor woven into the piece because you have to respond to the times that are happening.
1: Maybe we can take, like, zoom out again. I'm just thinking about public funding and how it creates its own dilemmas. Maybe not the basic income that kind of, Should come with no strings attached, although I think we all learned that actually sometimes there were strings attached and there were um, people checking to what degree we needed that amount of money. And there was needing to get tax persons involved to prove this or that. And um, some of us were asked to prove in what way we spent it and how much we needed and asked to give money back. So there was actually a lot of, there was a lot of like added in administrative tasks. (laughs) But nevertheless, I think most of us felt very, very lucky to receive anything at all, Mm -hmm. living in such a wealthy nation as Germany. But what about arts funding, where there's other kind of maybe dilemmas built into how the money is spent, how quickly the money is spent. This is one thing that I found really interesting. Um, how quickly one must produce, and then how much output there was also of like people making art because they got funding.
0: Yeah, I mean, but this is also like a, a catch twenty two too, that you have, I mean, at least here and maybe elsewhere as well, that you can't actually start a project before you've gotten the money so you can develop the concept but you can't actually begin any official work until you get the money and so I think you can find creative loopholes around that but in general you are kind of beholden to a funding body deciding that your idea is good enough to actually make it happen especially for a bigger idea and I'm in a position where I'm basically like having like bigger and bigger ideas that are really impossible to self-finance I think you know looking for financing elsewhere there are people who find creative ways to like make it all together but if I also believe from like a maybe political standpoint that no art should be supported and it should be financed and I'm a little stubborn with that and then I want to and I believe in the work and I believe that it has um a a resonance or a potential resonance with a wide audience. No, I think this is valuable. I think this should be funded. Then I'm going to keep on applying and then keep grinding and keep hoping that a jury will feel the same way that I do at some point. Um, But it also keeps you in a difficult position because you basically have to keep doing that until someone says yes. Um, And then it can feel stifling for creativity and it can feel very frustrating and it can feel very difficult. At the same time I realize I'm in a very privileged position. I am choosing to be an artist. I still continue to wake up every day and choose um, this life that I'm doing and that this is one of the challenges that comes with it. But at the same time it's an industry that's really characterized by um, constant cycles of rejection and that's brutal. Like, there's not a lot of other industries where you are essentially constantly applying for a job and constantly getting told no. Sorry, it was really good, but we've had a lot of applicants, you know, like, but constantly. It's not that you're sitting in a job and maybe you want a different one or you get laid off from your job and then you receive money for being laid off and then you apply for more. Like, you're basically constantly applying for jobs and constantly getting told no. And everyone's like, well, that's part of the game. And you're like, yeah, that's part of the game. And I'm not saying I even have a plan for how to make it better. I, You know, it's at the same time part of the game. And we pivot and we find different ways to make our work and to make our lives sustainable. But it's challenging.
1: Absolutely. Yes, it is. And It's hard to know what is valued. I mean, I think when things are funded—well, let's put it the other way. When things are privatized, Mm -hmm. um, like let's say in the music industry, you kind of understand, okay, it's more complicated than this, but you kind of understand, oh, I have 10 fans, therefore I'm selling no tickets. (laughs) I get it. I mean, either I make really esoteric music or nobody likes my music or like a combination where there's not been enough promotion or other things, but still there's feels like a more one to one relationship. Whereas when you're asking for funding, maybe it's not really about the commercial value of the work, possibly, mm-hmm. um, and but some other kind of value mm-hmm. that's been placed on
0: it. But I'm really thinking about the relationship between money and creativity or money and art. They interact with each other so differently on so many different levels and in different playing fields. So I can't think of like one overarching statement to make um, about how it works in general. I've just seen it play out with my work and with other people's work in really... Bizarre ways. So if I very concretely, if I think about when I was working at Overmorrow, and then I turned one of my performances into a hustle, the fact that I was making extra money from my creative work, and I had like a really concrete financial gain in the form of cash that people would give to me from like a short little improvised thing was somehow so fucking satisfying Like it was just and maybe it was just like a dopamine hit of like, hey, I'm worth something constantly, you know, like, hey, they're validating this work through giving me money. Thank you. I don't know. And maybe I was also feeling just like satisfied because I was kind of being cheeky and cheating the game or like inventing my own game on top of a game. And yeah, I enjoyed that. Um, But there was just a direct um Relationship between audience and performer, between consumer and product, or the pro- the thing that I was producing, that I found um, creatively inspiring. It actually inspired me to keep going and to keep finding new, like pushing that creative boundary or the cheeky boundary or the sexy boundary of the things that I was making. And specifically thinking about the brothel situation when we were making these stories. Um, yeah, it was really motivating. And then trying to think of what does that actually, what does that mean? Or like, can we represent that on a bigger scale? I don't have an answer right now, but... Or what would that mean? Like, could you zoom out or, like, blow that up and make a conjecture?
1: Yeah, I mean, you could conjecture that, like, you're a big capitalist and (laughs) we can only make art in a capitalist society (laughs) and no art can happen in a socialist system. (laughs) Edit, 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 edit.
0: That's excellent. No, I'm actually fine with that. Maybe I am a big capitalist, and part of my, you know, my, my <laughs> this sounds so horrible. Maybe it's just,
1: just, maybe it's just my core truth. No, but I mean, the question is like, yeah, I mean, does art happen without, does art happen without um, monetary incentive?
0: Of course it can happen. I think art can be created in many conditions and by many people, anytime, anywhere, like for sure. What we, tend to put like a capital A art on, if we're thinking of contemporary art specifically, if you're having a piece that has a capital A art assigned to it, it has a big price tag. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. So if we're thinking about successful capital A artists, they generally speaking have a pretty high floor price. Their work is selling at Sotheby's. Their work is being auctioned. Their work... Um, is being shown at places where people with money are interested in buying it and the price tag is assigning value is assigning artistic worth to something it's kind of like ratifying the artistic worth of a piece of art because someone's willing to pay for it because we live in a capitalist society. So maybe I am a big capitalist or maybe I'm just an artist living in a capitalist framework who wants to survive and more than actually just survive, I want to succeed. Okay, what are my benchmarkers of success? Well, if I want to feel like a successful artist, I would like to be able to live from my artistic practice. Okay, then I need a certain amount of income to be able to do that because I live in a capitalist society and this is how we... um, assign value to things. This is how we function. Of course, you can always like say, "No, I don't want this. I go off-grid. I'm making my like art in my off-grid community house, and that's still art." Of course it is. I wouldn't say that it takes away from being it. But if we're looking at social recognition, if we're looking at benchmarks of success, then yeah, there's usually a dollar or a euro or whatever <laughs> sign attached to that piece. Yeah,
1: I think that's very true. I think it's also weirdly also not attached, Mm -hmm. like it's sort of made invisible. I will have to remember what book I was reading, but it was kind of talking about these very, very early distinctions between the artist and the artisan. And the artist was basically looked at as A person who should be funded, who should be supported to not work so that Mm -hmm. they can just do art Mm -hmm. and that they should be – they should study. They should be put in a place where they can make their capital A art. Sounds great. Sign me up. And the artisan is like they can build a house, a beautiful house, like handcrafted, everything, every detail. But this is – has a dollar sign directly associated to it, and it's like gig per gig wage labor, you know, that has a dollar sign attached to the hourly amount that you're working. And at the end, you might produce something just as beautiful as a performance art piece that's put in a gallery. But at the end of the day, the kind of recognition is completely different, like that there is somewhere money allowing for this to emerge as something that is called capital A art. Mm -hmm and a production of value around it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think th- one thing you said that stuck with me is this idea that a price tag is usually invisible when it comes to a art. And I think maybe that's true in the case of performance art. Um, but I don't know if it's the case, or I, I, I don't think it's actually the case when it comes to fine art, because I think that somehow the reason why also fine art objects are sometimes considered newsworthy is because they'll sell for like x amount of money and that makes it really exciting Mm. so i think you can find those price tags but performance art is totally different because it's ephemeral because it's not necessarily quote supposed to be attached to a price tag because how can you put a price tag on an experience you know if we're not thinking about like a ticket that you're trying to sell or whatever true maybe it's maybe it's
1: um what ties those two together is just the fact that like somehow this price tag is not attached to time. Mm -hmm. Like, when I think about a painting that sells for millions, no one's going, is it worth um, a million dollars an hour, you know? or
0: (laughs) Like, how long did it take them to make that? Can we break that into an hourly wage? No one's doing that, right? Which I
1: I often get asked, like, oh, it's only a five-minute performance. Don't you think you can do it for 150 euros? It just takes five minutes. It just takes five minutes of my life. Or that it's all tied to time.
0: Um, It's a great segue into the performance that Una and I did at Art Basel. Yes. Because we have here the intersection of auction, a fine art, a performance art, and an inflammatory price tag. And then that caught attention. I'll start at the very beginning. Um, Una and I met last summer. So that would be August 2022. Yes, August 2022, on the dance floor in Berlin. And um, over the course of the evening, we eventually started talking about art. And she's a performance artist. I was like, I'm a performance artist. And we started chatting. And she told me about this piece that she was going to be doing at Art Basel. And then very generously invited me uh, to join her in the adventure. And the original performance um, didn't actually take place because two weeks before... uh, two weeks before Basel, um, we were told by the venue and we were supposed to be doing it at a place called Scope, which was like one of the art fairs that was part of the bigger weekend. Um, The director of Scope pulled the performance saying that it was, quote, not on brand uh, for this year, which we interpret as code for too controversial or someone on the board didn't like it. And... (laughs) Anyway, it got scrapped. So we scrambled, we freaked out, we doubled down and we like pivoted essentially to a new performance um, that's called Milking the Artist. And we performed it guerrilla um, once at Scope and once at uh, the main convention center of our Basel in Miami. And essentially, the performance is. Uh, Begins with us shouting for attention. Um, I unzip Una's uh, coat. Her breasts are underneath. We milk her breasts into a shot glass while I start an auction, a live auction for the glass of milk. And at our Basel, the winning bid was $200,000. We got the sold for $200,000, the artist's milk has sold for $200,000 before we were very swiftly escorted out by security. We wanted to make a statement, and we want to make a statement about the value of women's artistic labor and the value of performance art in these contexts specifically. So in the fine art world, what is the value of women's artistic labor? What is the value of performance art? And, um... Also, I think it was kind of a mechanism to capture attention and kind of bypass artistic gatekeepers and in inserting ourselves in these contexts and be like, no, we, we, we are meant to be here. Capturing attention by shouting and performing a live auction, which, by the way, like the audience took over like they the the bids were all from we had okay we had one plant the first bid was a friend and then the rest was just like the audience being the audience were any of those bids genuine like was someone actually willing to pay 20,000, 25,000 for this glass of milk? I don't know, maybe.
1: So they it, they understood it was a performance.
0: This is where it's a question mark for me. So I think people understood it was a performance. I think some people thought it was a real auction. It was our puzzle. So, like, also, this is another interesting facet. Like, when we walked into the main convention center, the energy was just so conservative, so dead, so like, oh, It's a Sunday or Saturday, I can't remember, and I'm going and looking at art, and it it was really bizarre, and then when we started the performance, within 30 seconds, we gathered a crowd of, like, 300, 500 people, and it was just, like, it exploded for three minutes, and then it was over, but... It galvanized attention in a way where I felt a, similar to people post-corona or during corona. People were hungry for an interruption. People were hungry to see something different, to be a little bit shaken up. And that was really, um, yeah, that was very exciting.
1: Yeah, I mean, what also strikes me, I mean, just, and I'm just looking at the aesthetic, is kind of the mix between um, the body, the the... Red female body, red sexualized body for sale for something that looks slightly sexual mm-hmm. because of the exposed breasts, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, also the significance of like breast, the breastfeeding, the expressing, the breast milk, mm-hmm. which would then gives this domestic labor mm-hmm. um, female red body that's been maternalized, turned into mother and desexualized, mm-hmm. and I'm. I'm curious if that if you got feedback on that or if if that came into also how you thought about the performance
0: so interestingly for both of us the performance is really not about breastfeeding um, neither of us are mothers and nor have the experience of breastfeeding so that wasn't necessarily the statement that we wanted to make however, I'm kind of excited when you make a performance that people take in in whichever direction they want to and so of course that we're cognizant that's going to be a part of the conversation and interestingly one of the um news sites that wrote one of the more like kind of nuanced uh, and interesting articles about the piece was a website called cafe mom and it was it was really nice to see someone like take it and then like kind of write their own perspective on it Um, Which, of course, dealt with the breastfeeding topic and especially breastfeeding in public and this kind of thing. Um, At the same time, for me and I think for Una as well, like the breast milk in this case is more a symbol of extraction and of extracting a female artist's labor. And how much is that artistic labor worth? How much is this glass of my labor, of my work, worth? I'm extracting myself for you, the consumer, for you, the audience. And then we, you know, can put an actual price tag on that, which is one of the interesting uh, conceptual mechanisms of this piece. The extraction has like a direct um, monetary value
1: now. Right. I mean, that's, it's it's interesting. And I... Um I definitely get it when you explain the symbolism there, but I also can't help but think that there's only some bodies that can produce breast milk, that it's not something that can be extracted from any body.
0: There is intention there and I think when you talk about a female red body or a body that can produce breast milk and then going with it you have thoughts about uh, domesticity, domestic labor, I think for me that all that symbolism is also there. And this is also why it works as a statement about female labor, about women's work specifically, which is still undervalued massively. If we're talking about domestic work, if we're talking about unpaid housework, if we're talking about just women in any field, women in the arts, like still earning less. And I'm even putting women with an asterisk here, which you can't hear. But, (laughs) you know, it's, it's pretty crazy, but it's still there. And so I think that's why it feels important. It feels feels relevant to be making art that deals with these topics in a subversive way, in a very direct way, in a way that I hope is easily accessed by audiences, whether an audience there or an audience that saw it on TMZ or read it about in the Daily Mail. Like, I think that the intention is pretty clear and so you can make your own connections from there i think there's a romanticized notion of the struggling artist who you know has to just barely get by and then oh my god they made it when they are 50 or when they're maybe 40 if they're lucky and then look how successful they are and people really love a like struggle to success narrative um and i myself like fantasize about it i'm not gonna lie there's there's a fantasy there and there's a reality that i see happening around me too so so there's like this one narrative At the same time i'm very conscious that i have chosen this life like i said i choose this life i still make active choices uh to to keep at it And maybe part of it is stubbornness or part of it is, um, a real commitment to the work that I want to create of the visions that I have that I want to manifest. And I still believe that they are valuable and have audiences. And there are things that I would like, there are experiences that I would like to create for myself and for others, You just
1: heard from performance artist, writer, and director Lori Baldwin. Through theater, live art, and film, Lori's approach weaves lightness and provocation together in order to challenge commonly held ideas about power, gender, endings, eroticism, and death. You can read more about her and her upcoming work in the show notes. I'm Mad Kate, and you've been listening to Sweat, a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body in work. The theme music was composed by me and features the voice of performer and actress Laurie Baldwin. Sweat airs every second Tuesday of the month at 13 hours Central European Time on Collaboradio, Free Radios Berlin, Brandenburg, Broadcasting on 88.4 FM in Berlin, 90.7 FM in Potsdam, and streaming online at fr-bb.org.